Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first startups and a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn each week from AI thought leaders. And of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, everyone's favorite, uh, we'll call him a carnival barker and an AI entrepreneur, Elon Musk, presided over uh, this past week's Tesla AI Day. It was mostly by his own admission, a recruiting event, but we also saw an early prototype of Optimus, the uh, ominously named Tesla bipedal humanoid robot scheduled for general availability sometime between 2025 and 2027. It doesn't do much now, but considering the 2021 big reveal, involved, I kid you not, a dude in spandex on stage. There seems to have been some progress in the past 12 months. Optimus may someday power Tesla auto factories. Musk says much of the innovation behind Optimus is related to auto-labeling video data from Tesla's, the automobile, (laughs) using machine vision plus new battery chemistries that could allow it to operate for a full day on a single charge, which as we know from talking to uh, great guests uh, like our friend Jim from uh, Zebra would be a pretty impressive feat. We've learned that uh, innovation always wins. We've also learned to never bet against Elon. So uh, stay tuned for exciting news about the Optimus. As always, we'll link to uh, details about Optimus and uh, this week's activities in the uh, show notes. But now shifting to this week's conversation. We had a great discussion with Tapanita Das, CEO of Sorcero, back in April about how AI is helping researchers in hard science fields find the most relevant content faster in academic journals. We discussed that it's not just a discovery and information retrieval problem, but also a trust and reliability problem. Like the challenges we face with content integrity in our social feeds, researchers also need help figuring out what to believe when using data found online to make decisions that may impact lives. For example, which drugs to develop or where the next famine may occur or how to build stronger bridges or which tactics are most effective at preventing crime in at-risk neighborhoods. Well, today's guest is an entrepreneur and a data scientist who needed more reliable access to evidence-based information that he could actually trust. After nearly three years as an analytics specialist at DraftKings, the sports entertainment company, Eric decided it was time to begin his entrepreneurial journey. Since then, he's raised a pre-seed round, assembled a team, and launched Consensus to help researchers find better answers faster. Today, we get to learn from an expert how generative AI is used to retrieve and analyze information. And without further ado, Eric Olson from Consensus, it's a My pleasure to welcome you to AI and the Future of Work. Let's get started by maybe having you share a bit more about your background and uh, how you got into the space. 
Yeah. Thank, thanks for having me in that, that awesome intro, Dan. Um, so yeah, I think first, maybe I'll just give you a sentence or two on what we're doing and then I'll give you a little backstory on, on how I got there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with Consensus and it's a, it's a new search engine that uses large language models uh, to try to find answers in scientific research papers. Uh, idea basically being you can type in a plain English research question and we will try to surface findings from papers that answer that question. Um, and yeah, and how I got into the space is, is kind of exactly like you said. Uh, you know, I have a background in, in data science, so it's kind of a more traditional machine learning and, and data science approach to, to all these models, but never really had experience with NLP. But, you know, I, I had one, I have, I have a family that has a background in research and academia, uh, and I kind of felt like this, this outsider to the scientific world. Uh, but I loved consuming scientific content. I loved listening to podcasts when scientists would go on. I'm reading a nonfiction book by a scientist. But getting that information on demand as a layman, as a non-researcher myself, is incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, Google is just explicitly not designed to be delivering us factual information about these topics. And traditional academic search engines that send you links to papers you know, haven't updated in a decade and, and people like myself who are, are not trained to do them and may have, you know, some attention deficits, uh, not that likely to pop open Google Scholar to really try to get quick and easy access to evidence-based information. Um, so that was really the problem statement of just, you know, feeling that pain of it being really hard to find trusted evidence-based information and thinking, hey, what if there's a way to automate this process? Uh, you know, I actually came up with that idea six or seven years ago, and then it was throughout covid having a little time, uh, extra time on my hands, you know, no longer commuting to work, doing research on the technology that would enable something like this to happen uh, and realizing that uh, it had just taken a massive leap forward and NLP, natural language processing, was at a point that it could actually solve this problem and it could actually just solve this problem as of, you know, a year ago. Um, so kind of was this light bulb moment of, hey, if there's a time to go after a problem like this, it is right now. Search engines are usually free and ad supported. What's the business model behind consensus? Yeah, great question. Uh, so right now it is completely free, uh, but in the future it will be a freemium subscription model. Uh, so depending on a lot of things over the next few months, it will depend on what premium features we're able to put out and what just you know user usage looks like. We will have some sort of paid option that will be premium features and or usage based. So there might be a world where you're allowed free five free queries, then you'd have to pay a subscription or some combination of that with uh, the premium features that our users are requesting. We build and we put the paywall behind those. Uh, and you know, we think that the, the way that search engines are free today is because they're advertising-based models, right? They, they make money because they show people ads when they're using them. Uh, and that is the root of a lot of the problem statement that we're trying to go after that um, if a product like that has an advertising-based model, um, they just can't be incentivized to be delivering you the best information. Uh, you know, their North Star metric becomes engagement and eyeballs to try to sell more ads and not, uh, you know, am I delivering the correct and, and more valid information? Uh, so we think that, you know, being an advertising-based model is pretty antithetical to what we're trying to accomplish. The best tech companies are usually the brainchild of entrepreneurs who experienced the pain themselves and needed a solution. So maybe whether it was at DraftKings or another point in your career, what's a problem that you've actually encountered that consensus would solve? Yeah, you know, my work at DraftKings wasn't too, you know, it, it's relevant in the sense that 
uh, I was working in machine learning and understanding how to take you know, complicated inputs and hopefully delivering something that gives you a nice, simple output, but the subject matter is, is, is quite different. So it, it really is more about in my personal life. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of our huge advantages that both me and my co-founder, um, who's a former college friend and college teammate of mine, who also has the, the unique background of being uh, a former college athlete who comes from a family of academics. So we kind of share these similar uh, personalities that we really are, are trying to build this product for ourselves uh, because we've both felt this problem so deeply. And, you know, I don't even think I need to give an explicit example, but just like generally speaking, you know, if, if I'm trying to learn about what supplements actually are backed by research that actually are effective in helping X, Y, and Z, or I have a, an autoimmune disorder where I have pretty bad inflammation and I want to learn what actually, you know, helps reduce inflammation and isn't just, you know, isn't bogus. You know, if you type in what supplements help with inflammation into Google, the first thing that's going to come up is a bunch of ads for a bunch of supplements. So that in and of itself is just, uh, you know, it's really blocking that process of trying to find uh, good information about questions like that. So that's just kind of one example of generally um, feeling that personal difficulty of trying to learn what the research says about my questions in a quickly and easy to understand manner. So we've all learned over the years that the problem with traditional search engines is that you can find something online that will confirm every belief that you could ever possibly have. Certainly. And uh, just because of the economics of the web and uh, uh, you know a lot of perverse incentives that content creators have, um, that's perpetuated over the years. How is consensus going to solve that? Yeah, one that, that is certainly true. And to be just totally like honest, it, it is not not true in, in science as well, right? You know, there is a huge reproducibility crisis of scientists massaging results to get a certain output because, you know, they're humans too. And the same reason why uh, an editorialized article uh, is really trying to hammer home a certain belief, many times, sometimes studies themselves are. Now, to give the scientific process and, and science as a whole some credit, it is most certainly a better starting point than editorialized content. So having kind of this sandbox to play in that is all peer-reviewed research inherently, in our opinion, gives us a step above content that you could just be searching that could be anything and is many times just editorialized content. Again, please don't mistake that for me saying that all peer-reviewed research is, is perfect and doesn't have its own problems. Um, so I think that that's one that it, that it gives us a better starting point. I think two is our incentives, again, going back to um, we don't show any ads, so we don't care about, you know, we want to get you your answer and get you out of the product. And all of our incentives are to deliver you good information. Um, so hopefully over time, that results in, in a better user experience of getting better information. Um, and then third, uh, there's some of this already in the product. If you were to go and use it, you'll see some of the tags we have on the results. So when you get a list of results, they're basically a list of conclusions of authors that hopefully are related to your question. Um, one of the tags that we have added to those results is what we call our, our journal rigor tag. And this is a independent analysis of the methods used by journals. It's by a company called SciScore, and they've conducted the largest analysis of scientific methods ever. They went through 1.5 million papers, measured, the, you know, measured on a criteria of how rigorous they are and how likely the studies within the market reproduce, how often they're blinded, randomized, use a diverse population set, have adequate effect sizes, so on and so forth. And they used that to rank the journals. So it's really the first pass at ranking journals 
on something other than you know how many citations the journals have, which have their whole have a whole bucket of worms of problems that come with that. Um, and that is just you know that is one small step in trying to add these you know, these rigor metrics to the product. But that is where we want to go is continuing to add more metrics and more tags and more indicators uh, around a subject like that. So basically, the north star being there, can we put in metrics and tags that try to that, that indicate how likely a given finding is to reproduce? So basically, the, this is all under the bucket of of adding things to the product. Uh, that help a user understand the potential quality of the research. So the founding vision for consensus sounds so elegant. It's almost like this Socratic process of asking questions and uncovering, you know, this kind of latent knowledge. And it almost implies that, like there's a right answer. Like what, you know, what's the best combination of supplements or how do I reduce yeah. my inflammation or whatever. But we we know that the peer-reviewed research itself is contradictory because there are different yeah. opinions about supplements and inflammation yeah. and things like that. So when consensus is applying a label or multiple labels, isn't consensus in some sense editorializing about how to disambiguate these contradictory results that are in peer, peer-reviewed research? Great question. Uh, so, you know, inherently when you have a search product, there's some of that where like you, you're searching for a question and you're going to be getting a list of responses that inherently have some editorialization in those responses, uh, you know, just based on the way that the studies were conducted. What, why we think we're a little bit different there is that, you know, we're not adding anything ourselves. None of this content is generated. It's all extractive. And we're trying to say it everywhere in the product that what you're looking at is not a final truth. It's not a final stance. It is a reflection of what the research says. And where we want to get to, there's there's two things I'll talk about of where, where we want to add to help address this. So the name consensus is because of what our vision is for the product and what we've, you know, we're working on in the background is to be able to summarize across papers. So we extract these claims. And if you say, is X, Y, and Z good for me? Uh, you know, we can find the 100 papers that have said yes, the 75 papers that have said no, and the 50 papers that have said, eh, maybe, and put those into those buckets, allow you to search within those buckets if you want, but basically give you in one shot a summarization of the consensus of the research. But what consensus doesn't mean is that there is a universal answer. All it means is we're trying to give you a representation of what the research says quickly. Um, and then the other part of this is, Things we want to add in the more short, short term are context around the results. So I talked about the, the quality side, but there's another side about like the parameters of the experiment and the population use to know if a certain thing applies to you. Because continuing to go on our, our supplement example, uh, you know, seeing a claim that says, yes, magnesium helps me sleep. That's wonderful. But the population might have been people with intense insomnia who are over the age of 60 and that might not apply to you. Luckily, those are all things that are able to be extracted using machine learning from papers. And that's a feature that we're working on right now of being able to have these results, have a little drop-down menu that says, who is this experiment for? Does this potentially apply to me? So I guess like to summarize all of it, you know, consensus is not meant to say that everything has a universal yes or no answer. It's meant to say that what we're trying to do is quickly give you a reflection of what the research says, if even if it is contradictory. And if you use even this early version of consensus that is still just on a single paper level, if you type in a question that is has contradictory research, you will see that directly on the screen in front of you. You know, we send out a, a newsletter 
every week of an interesting query that we came across and send it to all our users to you know kind of get them thinking about interesting ways to use consensus. And one I sent out, um, I think it was two weeks ago, was does the death penalty actually reduce crime? Uh, and if you type that question into consensus, there's the first, I believe, eight responses, perfectly every other one rotates of saying yes and no. And that's great. Like that is not the product not doing its job. That's exactly what it should be doing. Uh, so yeah, again, consensus is not meant to meant to portray that there is a, a perfect answer for everything. It's just meant to portray, we're trying to give you what the consensus of the research says about something. So extracting these summaries from these peer reviewed papers is obviously a hard technical problem. I teased in the opener about generative AI, which is certainly a hot topic in yeah. the AI community. Talk us through how you're using generative AI using large language models and what's the hardest technical problem you and the team have solved. Yeah, generative AI is extremely hot right now. And that's all, all anybody in the tech world can talk about on Twitter right now with, with Dolly and those, those image generators. We actually are not using generative AI. Uh, we are using extractive large language models. So what, effectively what we're doing is we're using these large language models to read through a paper and pull out the sentences in which authors are making a claim based on their evidence. So we hired a team of, it was like a dozen PhDs to go through tens of thousands of papers and just go through each sentence and mark it as a one or a zero. Is the author making a claim? We then take all that data, feed it to a large language model for then a model to learn what does it look like when an author is making their own original claim based on what they found in their paper? We then can extract those, those sentences from papers. And then you basically build a separate large language model that tries to pair those answers to questions. So it's a fine-tuned Q&A system that says, given the question, what are the claims that are answering and providing insights to those questions? So there's actually kind of two main large language model engines uh, in the whole pipeline that you'd be using consensus for. There's this extractive piece, which is trained on PhD annotations. And then there's this Q&A piece, which also is trained on another set of annotations where basically we gave, uh, and this is, I think, the most challenging one. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, so before we fine-tuned it, we tried to use a, a more basic system of question and answer matching. We saw this reoccurring problem pop up where Pretend you said, I keep going back to supplement uh, supplement examples, pretend, pretend you said, what are the benefits of vitamin D? What we kept seeing coming up would be, there are many benefits of vitamin D. And that's, you know, for a simple system that is trying to do some like similarity matching and using large language models, that's a perfect answer, right? It has a lot of the similar wor words, it is kind of getting at the meaning of the question. But if we're thinking about it in like a real context, that isn't what we want to deliver. We want it to be the benefits are X, Y, and Z. So we really we called it the vitamin D problem. And we tried to figure out like what is a way that we could train a model to actually take that next step and understand that this is kind of answering the question and it's very similar. So a, uh, a less intelligent system may call this a great answer. We need to train a system that says, no, that's actually a terrible answer. And we want to get to re the real you know, root of what an answer to this question is. So what we did is we, we fine-tuned our own version of a Q&A model and we took um, 500 sample questions of what we think people would be asking consensus. We used some of our early user testing data to, to populate these questions. And we gave each one of those questions 20 possible answers. So 20 claims that we've extracted from papers. And then we sent those off to a bunch of scientists 
And we said, score these answer and or question and answer pairs. So we now have a giant set of annotated data that is, here's your prompt, here's a potential answer, how well does it do it? Feed that to a large language model uh, to teach it to say, you know, get to the actual answer of these questions. Uh, and you know, try to rank the try to rank the possible answers, and that is the model that is now being used in the product. Uh, when you type in a question, try to service you uh, the best possible answers. That's a fascinating approach, which I could imagine is well optimized for precision. But when it comes to recall in a general search engine, it will be poor because at some point you have to have made some decisions about what peer-reviewed research to have the PhDs hand label. So presumably a bunch of them are related to crime and maybe how, you know, how, uh, how the death penalty impacts crime levels and maybe about supplements, but there's a wide yeah. set of topics that people might ask about. How do you, how do you think about compensating precision for recall? Yeah. Great, great question. I guess the first answer is that that will always be somewhat of an issue. You know, we try to, and the way we try to mitigate it is we do try to have it be a very diverse question set from social sciences questions to biology questions. And we really do our best to try to make it diverse, but inevitably there are going to be topics and domains that aren't covered in the training set. And the hope and what we have seen a lot of promise that this is partially true is that it isn't always about the models quote unquote, learning about the subjects that makes them be able to provide good answers. It's more about like the structure of the sentences and the way they're written uh, and like the semantic way the sentences are structured as opposed to the core subject matter of them. Uh, and in the, the extractive model, we found that to be true. Uh, and basically like it wasn't about the models. It would differ how well it did across domains a little bit, but not that much. And we found that to be more about medical papers tend to have claims written that are really, really clean. These results suggest that magnesium helps you sleep. Like that is how a lot of medical papers are written and less about the fact that it was unclear about certain subject material because the differences between accuracy and domains was pretty small. Uh, there was some, but it was not massive. And we attribute that to uh, the models learning about the semantic structure of the sentences, as opposed to relying too much on uh, the core subject matter behind it, if that makes sense. And uh, I believe that to also be true in the Q&A system, that it isn't really about, it's not trying to arbit, uh, is this like the right answer? It's trying to arbit, is this a potential answer? And that was part of the instructions we gave, right? When we told the annotators to annotate these, we didn't say mark it really bad if it's a really great potential answer, but you think it's wrong. That deserves full credit. You may think it's wrong, but that's not what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to mark, is this a potential great answer? So we, we think that a similar thing is also at play there, that it's much more about uh, the semantic structure of the sentences than the core subject matter. I get the approach. It totally makes sense. But as a thought experiment, have you compared the performance of the hand-labeled data from the PhDs versus a publicly available LLM like GPT-3 or Google Palm or something like that, just, just to see how, how the PhDs perform. Yeah, I mean, we've played around with GPT-3's Q&A system quite a bit. I don't have any like hard numbers to say like how they compare. Uh, I'd say that the GPT-3's Q&A system is, is super interesting and it, uh, it usually does spit out a pretty good answer if you say what are the benefits of something, but 
it kind of reads like a, a canned sentence from like the top of a Wikipedia article. The big problem with generative AI in accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish is generative AI doesn't cite its sources yet. So it's effectively just kind of coming up with these answers out of thin air and part of the, uh, you know, it's obviously trained on this giant corpus. So it's not out of thin air, but you don't understand what the source material of what, how they derive that answer is. And that's, you know, a pretty giant problem in the scientific space. Uh, so we kind of think of that as uh, we've thought about building generative Q&A systems, but we've kind of always thought about it as like a fun feature but couldn't really be the core product yet until we address some of those limitations. So researcher does a search, uh, submits a query to consensus, yep. and they make some decision based on information consensus provides. And hypothetically speaking, it leads to some kind of harm to people. They make a decision about, you know, uh, you know how much vitamin D to give a patient. They make a decision about, you know, how to regulate which crimes should be given the death penalty, things that matter. Yep. Uh, now, consensus can't be blamed for the underlying content, but it surfaced the answers and, and, yep. and implied that, that these are actionable. Yep. What responsibility do you and consensus have for actions taken using data that consensus delivered? Yeah, no, totally fair question. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, if you if you play around with the product at many different points in time, we do try to give disclaimers and say kind of exactly that, that, um, you know, you see this results screen, don't take this as just a final truth answer. And if there's going to be action taken, you need to you know do your due diligence of reading through the papers that these answers are coming from. Uh, we have a tag in the top left that says beta on it. And if you hover over it, it gives you that message. When you join the product, we have a little walkthrough that ends with that exact message. Uh, so we want to try to say that as much as possible and put it throughout the product that, uh, you know, these various disclaimers and, and encouraging people to do their due diligence. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, we definitely help ourselves some by not generating the content. It is merely extractive. So we really don't have much difference in liability than a traditional academic search engine that's just delivering you the links to the papers. The only difference is, is that we've gone the step of going into the papers and pulling out some information that's hopefully related to your question. But again, it still is just meant to be uh, trying to serve as a reflection of what the research says to your questions. And that inherently um, takes some of the onus off of us that all we're trying to do is, you know, all, all we're doing is just showing you what content is already out there, not creating our own and synthesizing in a way that leads to an explicit recommendation. I'm going to take the topic of generative AI one step further, and I'm going to just throw out this hypothetical that we're rapidly approaching a time when the integrity of content we find online is going to be even more questionable than ever, because there'll be a time soon when most of it will have been generated by AI. And so whether it's a deep fake and you don't really know who's in the video that you're watching or a scientific recommendation you know, cold from who knows what sources, and there's no, there may not be a human actually behind it to take there ownership. Might be scientific papers written by AI in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so fast forward to a time that's probably not too far in the future. Um, is consensus more important then? Is it a harder technical problem to solve? Like, what do you think about launching consensus into a world when the author and the integrity of content will be less reliable than ever? 
Yeah, super interesting question. To take a little bit of a positive spin on it uh, and, and how I think consensus can, can help too, is, is this is kind of a part of that, is, you know, if the tech, not if, when the technology gets to a point to be doing all these things you mentioned, that also means that the technology is able to help solve some of the problems that it creates, or like it does the, this, the increase in the graph and technological capability doesn't only swing toward the negative, right? There are ways that the same technology that is causing the problems is the same technology can help chip away at some of those problems. And that'd be my overarching answer is that I hope that when these things come up, then there's also technology that gets really good at detecting it. And, you know, if, if we get to a world, fast forward 15 years where consensus hopefully still exists and there's AI generated papers, like those, you know, deserve their own tags on, in our product in a certain different way of representing them. And, um, you know, I'd hope in, in science specifically that there would be some guardrails put in place uh, that makes you have to disclose that. But if, you know, there's people inevitably working around that system, hopefully there's ways to detect that. And, you know, the, that talking earlier about the, the quality of research, what, what makes me really excited about how AI can help push that forward is AI can be used to extract so many of the different parameters of a paper and then itself give you this incredibly powerful and scalable way to assess the quality of research. Uh, instantly and extract these information from papers and give it this quantifiable score of the potential reproducibility. And that's just, that's just one example of how this new technology, like it isn't all bad. Everyone loves to hypothesize about uh, the, the negative downsides to it, but there inevitably will be these incredible applications that contribute to the upside and hopefully mitigate some of these downsides. So in summary, definitely scary. It will definitely be able to be possible, but hopefully as technology evolves, there's also solutions that come out of that. Eric, I got to get you off the hot seat, but yeah. uh, I'm not letting you go without answering one no, last question for me. No, this is great. These are great. So I recently had a friend of mine on the podcast, a guy named Dan Grunfeld, an athlete I greatly admired. He was in the Knicks organization and he played basketball at my alma mater, Stanford, amazing shooting guard. And he's now a venture capitalist and a, an, an author. And I asked him how his uh, collegiate athletic career influenced his career, his philosophy, you know, his, his life. And I gave a really interesting answer. And I, I, as, a, as a former collegiate athlete, I know you played football at Northwestern, go Wildcats. Okay. Um, would, uh, would, would love to get your perspective. How, is, how has that experience shaped your, uh, your professional career and who you are as a person? Yeah. Uh, another good question. A little, a little bit of a deviation from the, the future of the dangers of generative AI. I think the number one thing that it taught me that I pull on, you know, nearly every day as an entrepreneur, is the 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 forcing function of pushing through the imposter syndrome that you always have. And you know, I grew up in out the suburb of Boston, not a football hub. I didn't start playing football until my sophomore year of high school. I come from a family of tall, skinny academics. Never thought of myself as this incredible football player, uh, and was really kind of surprised when I had you know got these scholarship offers to potentially play in college, and um, really didn't know if I was cut out to do it, and had these doubts in my heads at all time. At all times, you know, had some success and was able to put myself in a position to be out on the field and realizing those doubts don't go away. And you still kind of have that voice in your head of like, I don't belong here. Like, what am I doing here? I'm about to be exposed on the field. And if sports, you know, they, they, people talk about the expression of putting yourself in the arena, 
and sports forces you to actually be in an arena with hundreds of thousands of people watching against some of the best teams across the country. And, you know, having then, you know, having those thoughts still be in my head, but then having to go out there and then actually, you know, having some semblance of success is an incredibly powerful thing to teach yourself that it's like, I'm always going to have those thoughts and everyone has those thoughts and you just kind of need to ignore them and push forward. Uh, and if you always, you know, if you always wait until you're perfectly ready to do something, you'll never do anything. And you kind of have to to push forward past that, that imposter syndrome that everybody has at least some semblance of in their head. And I think sports is, is the best forcing function to teach yourself that for me, at least it was. As an entrepreneur, what's the equivalent of that? You know, the, the come out of the tunnel moment, you know, yeah. hundred thousand fans screaming and you know, you and you underneath the hot, the spotlight, what's, what's the equivalent as an entrepreneur? I'd say probably launching. Uh, when we opened, we, we launched three weeks ago and we're open to the public and we, we did it on a website called product hunt where people go to find new products and, you know, having this thing that we were kind of secretive about, we had some friends using it. We had some like early waitlist people using it, but you know, we're kind of secretive about it and didn't, you know, you don't get that much feedback when there's only a few hundred people using it. And just having a day when it's like, Hey, we're open and we're going to spend all of our time and resources to try to get people to come into it. Uh, it's pretty terrifying when you have this thing that's kind of your baby and this thing that you're, you're really proud of, but you know that it has some limitations still. And it's like, you have no idea how people are going to think about it. Like, you know, there's these two kind of, and it goes back to like the imposter syndrome in some ways, there's these two kind of conflicting schools of thoughts in your head going on at the same time of, you know how much work you put into it. You know, all the amazing things it can do and you're incredibly proud of it, but having all that knowledge, you also know the limitations of it and that there's some things that don't work exactly the way you'd want them to work. So you have this like intense knowledge about your product that really is this weird, and it's similar to sports, right? Like, you know, all the work you've put in and what you can do, but at the same time, it's like, do I deserve to be out here? Like what's going to happen? Am I about to be exposed? Uh, so it's, yeah, it's this interesting, interesting rattling that goes on inside your brain uh, when you're kind of put into the arena. And I think that uh, launching a product and saying you're open for business and trying to get as many people to sign up is, is the best equivalent to, to running out of that tunnel. You know, I don't so want to give VCs that much credit and say that it's like when you get in front of a, a VC. So uh, where can uh, our listeners learn more and more important, how can they help out you in consensus? Yeah. So we are, are completely free. Like I said, at some point in the future, we will move to a freemium model. But right now, our goal is to, to get a bunch of users and get a ton of feedback about the product. So anybody is free to come create an account. You can create a free account and get searching at consensus.app.app. Create a free account and, and start asking, uh, asking your, your research questions. And then as far as helping, share it with your friends. You know, we, We've built the product. One of the, the cool features we have uh, is we've built it to be really shareable. And we think that that's a pretty powerful tool that doesn't exist typically with this type of information. You know, it's not the easiest to, to share a Google Scholar link to a paper or anything. Uh, and we've made the actual findings and conclusions and the, the links to the abstract easily shareable via text or via social media. Uh, so try doing that with your friends. You know, next time you get in an argument about a subject, try to find, try to back, out, back it up with some actual peer-reviewed information and, and throw it into a family group text or something. Uh, but yeah. Sign, join, search, share. Eric, it feels like we're uh, we're just getting started. As, uh, as some of these important topics about ethics and generative AI mature, uh, be be great to have you back back on the show if you wouldn't mind. Hundred percent, I really enjoyed it. Well, that's uh, that's all the time we have for this week. But uh, 
Eric Olson and consensus, uh, certainly fair to say that we are all rooting for you to succeed. So best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Dan. Well, that's, uh, that's all the time we have for this week on AI and the future of work. I'm your host, Dan Turchin. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest.